The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics this very exciting Friday. I'm Sebastian Salek. And I'm Roger Hearing. Very good afternoon. Now, it could be an interesting weekend. We're getting all sorts of suggestions that a deal may be in the offing, though we've had contradictory uh, things on that. Trade talks between the UK and the EU reaching what seems to be a make-or-break moment. We had Downing Street briefing over uh, the last 24 hours that the, there were new demands from the EU and that this was unacceptable, but at the same time we're now getting suggestions perhaps that maybe it's within the grasp. It, it's a very a very fluid situation, I would say. UK officials uh, said the EU turned suddenly up with a new set of demands, saying the talks backwards. They didn't say what the demands were, and EU officials denied it. And now EU officials are saying uh, to Reuters that maybe Maybe uh, a deal is imminent, perhaps this weekend. Yeah, there's so much flying around, Roger, isn't there? And what we really want to do in this programme is cut through all of that and find out exactly what's going on and exactly when we can expect some sort of breakthrough. You've also got the French uh, causing issues on the EU side. Diplomats there raising concerns that Michel Barnier and his team making too many concessions to get a deal over the line. That was reiterated again this morning by the Europe Minister, Clement Bonne, who said that France will veto any Brexit deal if it isn't in the national interest. So pressure also on the EU side to get something that is palatable for all 27 member states. Remember, everyone has to agree for this deal before it can go through. Joining us to discuss all of this is Alex de Reuter, Director of the Centre for Brexit Studies at Birmingham City University. Alex, a great day to have you with us. What about this UK acquisition then, that the EU suddenly turns up with all of these new demands? Do you buy that? Well, I mean, a lot of rhetoric, of course, accompanies public statements during negotiations. But, I mean, I think the key point is this. In contrast to a withdrawal agreement that came into effect earlier this year, a new trade agreement requires the, 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 the approval, in effect, of all 27 EU member countries. So any individual one of them can shoot it down if they're not happy with the provisions. And, of course, Michel Barnier's mandate is set by the 27 member states. So, you know, he operates within terms of that. And if, they, if they're concerned, for example, that he may be giving too much away, potentially on fishing, then they, they, they reserve the right to... Um, make that abundantly clear. So in, in terms of the negotiations, the trust the negotiations, there, there are two still key issues where, where you know, we, we don't see agreement. The first of them, of course, as you, as you know, probably is uh, fishing. 
that the UK is seeking to have at least, um, I think the latest offer is 60% of, of uh, European fishermen's catch in British waters effectively repatriated. That's unacceptable to the European side. But I, I think the second more substantive issue relates around the so-called level playing field provision. There, there are two aspects to that. One is that the notion of the UK maintaining some sort of parity with European regulatory standards around employment law or environmental standards or state aid provisions. And, and the second aspect of that, of course, is in terms of when you sign a trade agreement, you need some enforcement mechanism or dispute resolution mechanism put into place if one side thinks the other has broken the terms of the agreement. And, and that's a key point. I think, you know, Brexit only has an economic logic if you could pursue uh, different regulatory standards to, to the ones that you've had in Europe. Otherwise, what's the point of it? Well, indeed, Alex. I mean, let me pick up on that, because it's, it's interesting we are in this position with the, the, the details pretty much laid out as to what's on the table. But we knew that a little while back. Has something, do you think, materially changed now, or is it just the clock ticking? Is just why everyone is suddenly saying, yes, it's here, or no, it isn't? Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, we've, we've had this cut and thrust now for four years, but now the clock is definitely ticking, of course, because the, the UK government has uh, refused to extend this so-called transition period of continued membership of the single market and customs union, and they even legislated to do so to prevent that happening. So we, we hit this brick wall at, you know, uh, 11 p.m. our time on the 31st of December, and then after that, uh, you know, the, the, the new regime comes into play. And I think, you know, a big element of that is the clock is ticking. But, of course, you know, for four years, the, the government has been saying to businesses, you must prepare for Brexit. And, and the response from businesses, well, until you've got a definite deal or, or not on the table, it's a bit hard to know what we're preparing for. Yeah, but then the general talk is around this Sunday really being, uh, in a sense, a hard deadline. You've got MPs expected to reinstate the law-breaking clauses of the Internal Market Bill on Monday. That could cause a huge row with Brussels and see talks fall apart. Do you see any scope for things being pushed beyond this weekend if no agreement arises? No, I don't. I, I think, you know, it was always accepted on both sides that... Um, you know, from the EU's perspective, it needed at least six weeks to, to ratify any agreement that came into place because each one of the national governments, in some cases regional governments, would have to sign up to it, in effect. And also the European Parliament would have to give its blessing. Of course, there's been an emergency um, sitting in the European Parliament into the 28th of December, some kind of last-minute hope. So, you know, that that really is the last opportunity uh, if, if like, they wish to get an agreement in place before that sunset period at the end of the year because of the, the time needed to approve it. Alex, what do you think about the political will in all this? Because that's that's a key issue, I, I think. A lot of people are saying, if Boris Johnson wants it, if Emmanuel Macron wants it, it is within grasp. But obviously Boris Johnson has got to be careful about his own backbenchers, the very hard Brexiteers, he has to carry them with him. Or does he now perhaps not anymore? That's an interesting point. I mean, the economic logic of Brexit to me is clear. I mean, there's no net economic benefit to Brexit. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, politically, though, it's a different story. And, and you're right, you have to look at the Conservative Party, you have to look at the MPs, you also have to look at the people who voted for Boris Johnson to become leader in the first place, the Conservative Party membership. And on most economic and social issues, but they are far to the right of the general public in that regard, you know. Um, a majority of them, for example, would be prepared to see Scotland become independent if it preserved Brexit. So they're the people who voted for him. So he has to be mindful of them. He also has to be mindful of Nigel Farage and, and, and the Reform Party that he's now rebranded the Brexit Party as. 
you know, nipping at his heels from the right wing. So you know, he's caught a bit of a bind there. And, and what about the European side? I mean, there is some concern. We've seen it from, from the threats from France, but you've also got countries like Hungary and Poland that are kicking off over separate things within the, the sort of EU realm. Is there a risk that there is a deal that is formulated that doesn't satisfy everybody on the EU side? Well, yeah, of course there is. I mean, you, you come back to fishing as an example. I mean, the UK might, you know, really be proud of its maritime traditions and, and old fishing sector in high esteem, but so do the French, the Dutch, the Spanish and the Danish. So, um, yeah, I mean, th- th- there is every chance, of course, that any one of them could, could shoot an agreement down because they're not happy with it, you know, as you pointed out, but the French government already made this clear. But, but, but do you see Barnier agreeing to something like that that he knows could be shot down by another member state? Well, again, his mandate is set by them, so all he can do is say that this is what, you know, we've come up with, back to you to, to, to say yes or no. And, of course, he has to go back and brief them, and then that, that will dictate uh, where the negotiations go from here. What about the suggestion, Alex, again, also that after this, yes, there's a deal, a skinny deal, let's call it, um, that gets through perhaps in the next week or so, and it gets signed up to... But then everyone says, yes, that's a holding thing. We actually are now going to go into some serious talks without the threats, political and economic, hanging over us, and actually do a rather better deal, perhaps, for later down the road. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I would suggest the possibilities of that are minimal. Um, having said that, I think if we walk away from this round with no deal, I mean, that would be what economists would call an unstable equilibrium. I mean, Given the nature of economic interdependency, given the fact that we rely on we rely on the European Civil Aviation Safety Agency, for example, to to vet our planes, you know, we would have to have some emergency measures put into place, regardless. But in terms of if we actually had a trade agreement in place, if we get a, a, a bare bones trade agreement in place, would that be the basis for more? I think that really depends who's in power. I don't see the thrust of that changing if the Conservative Party remains in power. Because the stated intention of Brexit, of course, is to be able to pursue our own trade deals with other countries around the world. If, if, for example, you were to want to rejoin the EU customs union, you would forego an independent trade policy. You know, uh, for me personally, I think that the, there would be more benefits, obviously, being part of the customs union. But the logic of Brexit says, well, if you're in a customs union, you can't set your own tariff. If you join the single market, you have to abide by European regulatory standards. If you to come back to the point, well, then what is the point of Brexit? If you end up with a situation whereby you you are largely abiding by European regulations, adopting its trade regime, but you have no say in our decision to make. You know, yeah. Should yeah, 2024 I... come along and we see a change of government, for example, maybe that will become you know, more of a policy directive. But um, for the moment, no, I don't, I don't see it deepening anything beyond what's on the table for now, unless, unless of course, the, uh, the economic fallout is so severe that it produces a massive public backlash. But no real sign of that at this point. Yeah, and I mean, if that, that did come to pass with the UK not being in a very weak negotiating position there, everything, you know, the, the, the protocol has played out, the negotiations have played out, we've got a new setup, and then they're essentially coming back into the EU for some changes. Yeah, well, I mean, to be quite blunt about the UK is in a weak negotiating position as it is. Um, it's, it's, we are facing a scenario essentially whereby if we reach a deal with the EU of the sort the government claim they want, then over the next 15 years, that would make us 5.5% worse off than we otherwise would have been. If we had no deal with the EU, then over the next 15 years, we would be 7.5% worse off than we otherwise would have been. And the same analysis suggests that in the unlikely event we ever had a trade agreement with the United States, 
It would only boost our GDP over that same period, in effect, by 0.16%. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. With all this uncertainty looming, how do either side of the Brexit camp, pro and anti here in the UK, feel about the prospects of a deal or exiting the transition period without one in less than a month's time? We're pleased to be joined today by the former Brexit Party chairman, currently chairman of Reform UK, which was formerly the Brexit Party, also, of course, a well-known businessman, Richard Tice. Also joining us, Seb Dance, former Labour MEP and now senior advisor at Signal Global Signum Global Advisors. Welcome, gentlemen, both. Richard, let me come to you first Morning. to say, what concessions by the UK side would you find acceptable at this stage, or should the UK side, in your view, right now, just walk away? But I think, the, uh, in truth, I think there will be a deal at the last minute. There's all the noise and theatre uh, that traditionally goes on with, uh, you know, with big EU negotiations. It's always left to the last minute. The reality is there are three outstanding issues. They're the same issues that have been on the table and outstanding uh, for the last couple of months um, to do with fishing, level playing field. Uh, you know, those are the, the key issues. And then the issue of state aid. My concern is that at the last minute, uh, a, a, a weakened Boris Johnson will make significant concessions on fishing and on state aid. And, and we would find that unacceptable. Uh, there needs to be some compromise. A, a deal where, for example, there's a, a phased uh, change to the fishing arrangements over three years, possibly four, I suspect most people would find acceptable. But if it was to look like sort of ten, a 10-year uh, similar arrangement on fishing to what we've got currently. I think most people in the UK, and we certainly would find that uh, completely unacceptable. So look, I think there'll be a lot of noise. I think there will be a deal. Both sides will spin it, but they've got the better of the, uh, the negotiations. Um, we will be watching very, very closely. And if we feel that Boris has sold out the opportunity, then we'll be calling him out on it very loudly. Okay, so a possible climb down on fishing coming from the UK. Uh, Seb, jump in on this. What do you make of that assertion? And is it something you think would get through the UK Parliament? It's probably about the only thing I've ever agreed with Richard on is that there will probably be a deal. Um, And, (laughs) you know, in actual fact, I think, you know, we're in a situation where, yes, the UK is now saying that there have been some last minute changes. But I think in reality, that is designed to cover up what is quite a substantial climb down from the UK when it comes to the level playing field, uh, which is all, as I understand it, all but agreed. Um, the uh, the issue, of course, about whether or not this is subject to parliamentary approval is, is interesting because, of course, it was the government that removed the ability of the UK Parliament to actually have any meaningful say on this 
uh, as part of the withdrawal agreement so that there will be no official formal ratification in the UK Parliament. But there will, of course, be in the European Parliament, where we no longer have any British representatives. So as far as taking back control is concerned, of course, this is yet another example uh, of how we have done the complete opposite. Well, and of course, me... it's very important, to, very important to remember, by the way, of course, that whatever is agreed, this deal will be nothing like what was promised in 2016. Well, that was really uh, what I even wanted with to deal, pick up. The changes will be substantial. That's what I wanted to pick up with you, sir, because, I mean, is there a point where you, clearly opposed to Brexit in the first place, could say a good deal could emerge from this in some form? What would a good deal coming out of this stage look like to you? Oh, excuse me. Well, I mean, the OBR itself has said that uh, a deal on the terms that we expect, which would be primarily focused on goods uh, and not on services, which, of course, comprise 80 percent of the UK economy, um, a deal of that sort would still represent a 4% reduction in GDP as opposed to where it would otherwise be. Now, we all hope that there will be a rebound, of course, from the COVID uh, pandemic next year, uh, but it will still be substantially less of a rebound than it would be had we stayed in the single market and the customs union. Uh, and whatever comes out of this process will inherently be completely unsustainable because you will have businesses re realising that what they can do now cannot be done as of the 1st of January, there'll be a whole range of sectors affected. The effects of this will become far more apparent as we go through next year. And I suspect that the next 10 to 15, maybe even 20 years of British politics will all be about how we re-establish those links, how we rebuild what we're about to throw away. Uh, and, and that's why you know, anyone hoping that Brexit will simply go away or that we have somehow got it done is going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, Richard, I know you've been relatively relaxed about a no deal in the past. What with COVID compounding the economic situation, surely an unacceptable outcome now? Uh, not at all, completely the opposite, actually. Um, no deal may well be the best deal. The reality is, given the disruption that businesses have had to put up with this year, uh, which has been seismic, um, you know, the reality is many businesses have much bigger things to worry about. Bearing in mind, of course, that less than 10% of businesses export to the European Union. And isn't it interesting that actually on the most important thing, which was currently called the vaccine, the UK, because we have now left the European Union, because we can rely, we've taken back control of medicines regulation back to the American That is China. not true. Now actually, that is not is true. true. Seb, hold on one second. We'll bring you in in just one second. Richard, finish your point. You can't just lie. Seb, Seb, hold on one second. We'll, we'll bring you in on that. Uh, Richard, finish your point. This is accepted by everybody, which is that we've now got approval about a month earlier than the EU is likely to give approval through its own regulatory body because we've taken back control, because we now regulate our medicines here in the UK. And that's fantastic news. Lives will be saved because we've Brexited, because or, we left the EU last January. And that's fantastic. Or, all right, Richard, let me... Let me, let me come in here and say that the head of the regulator actually said that it wasn't a Brexit advantage. But, Seb, let me bring you in on this point. Yes, it wasn't a Brexit advantage because, of course, Hungary itself has approved a vaccine uh, under emergency provisions. Uh, and, of course, it, it shouldn't need, people shouldn't need to be reminded that we're still in the transition, therefore subject to EU rules. So, of course, it was possible under EU rules. What the EMA, uh, what the uh, other EU member states have decided is that they will have a common... Uh, point of entry into the vaccine. And of course, had we been part of those discussions, we may or may not have decided the same thing. But you can have an approval before there is a general approval by the EMA under the emergency provisions. That is always possible. And that's exactly what's happened. 
Well, let, let me push you on that, Ted, because I mean, it is true to say that Europe has demonstrably been slower off the mark in a lot of these areas. Uh, and in fact, one thing that's been happening during the COVID crisis, Europe has not, by general consent, not responded terribly well. There have been a lot of divisions, a lot of confusion. I mean, it isn't a great advert for the way that Europe works, is it? And, and the UK has. Uh, I mean, let's be quite clear here. Member states and individual countries are able to be very nimble in terms of emergency response. What the EU is is a, selection, is a collection of uh, institutions that are intergovernmental that necessarily take a bit of time in order to get the necessary action. But when it does act, when it scales up uh, what it's able to do, look at what has been achieved. Not only have we got a response uh, in terms of uh, fiscal response from uh, the, the European Union, but we also have uh, the ability of agencies to collaborate on research. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why we have a series of vaccines that are potentially going to be uh, a, a route out of this pandemic that would, would otherwise have taken far, far longer had that cooperation, had that ability to scale up the research uh, and share knowledge uh, not been possible. So quite the reverse of this being some sort of UK success story versus the sclerotic EU. I'm afraid it's not It's not like that at all. We have to, yeah, you know, to realise that we are not the centre of the universe, that collaboration and working with others is the way forward and to isolate ourselves and somehow wrap ourselves in the flag and pretend we're the best of everything. I'm sorry, it's a dead right. end. Uh, Richard, I've got to ask you about the future. I mean, you were the Brexit party. You are now the Reform Party. W- what is the plan once Brexit has has been swept under under the rug or maybe just sorted i suppose is the word really what what is the plan next to reform party the reality is that for most people brexit is way down the list of priorities at the moment most people in the private sector are worried about jobs paying the mortgage food on the table for their families we're focused on trying to reform the government's approach to this virus we've been recommending to adopt the great barrington way which is a much better way we then want to be involved in Uh, in actually the way that we recover economically from this virus. That must be around, uh, we've got to grow our way out of this economic um, crisis. We can't tax our way out of it. And that means cutting taxes, cutting daft EU regulations as quickly as possible, and cutting the monumental amounts of government waste, some of which we've seen uh, this year in terms of huge sums being wasted by the government. So those are the opportunities. How how involved in reforming that that approach, reforming that trade, and, you know, it's going to be vital for the future prosperity of the well, UK, the speed at which we grow out of this crisis. Let me, let me bring Seb in here to finish. I mean, where do you go? Because, I mean, you know, you are against Brexit. You have to accept it. perhaps it will be there. And do you campaign for a, a closer relationship for the future with Europe? Well, quite how we grow ourselves out of it by immediately slapping a 4% penalty on our economic growth is, is, is it's irrelevant. an interesting that's, that's, theory there, Richard. But, uh, but never mind. Um, it's, oh, it's irrelevant now. Okay, fine. So, well, well, mean, let me push you, you to an answer, Seb. Where do you Rich, go? What do you Richard campaign actually wants, Richard actually wants a steeper uh, cut than 4%. But what do you want, Seb? The deal. Well, look, we are going to leave the single market. We are going to leave the country. Let Seb answer that. Seb, what do you want? We are going to leave the single market and we are going to leave the customs union. And that will produce profound shocks across our economy, whether it's professional services, through to financial services, through, of course, to the immediate impact on exporters and importers. And I think that very clearly over the next 10 to 15 years, we will simply have a process of trying to rebuild what we are about 
to destroy. And, and that, I'm afraid, is, is the future of UK politics. It will have all sorts of other ramifications as well for the yeah. Union, uh, when it comes to Scotland, for uh, uh, border Poland, Ireland, potentially as well. Um, you know, our very status as a, as a, as a major uh, player in the world is at stake here. And I'm afraid that is the future of our politics for the next couple of decades. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.